All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want more information on my company, you can find that at teamrhinooutdoors.com. We only have one co-host again today, and that's Brad Hoppy from Muskie Mayhem Tackle. If you want more information about Muskie Mayhem Tackle, visit muskiemayhemtackle.com. And our guest for this evening, this afternoon, this morning, whatever it is, um, is Ben Olson. He's the co-host of Operation Fishing Freedom TV show. Thanks for coming on today, Ben. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you guys? Doing good, Ben. It's good to have you on here. Well, I appreciate the call. I, I appreciate any opportunity to, to talk at great length and depth about myself. <laughs> I know better than that, Ben. <laughs> but uh, we're happy to have you on here because you bring a lot of different value to this whole show. You know, um, between the saltwater thing, the musky thing, um, the freshwater all the way around the fly angling side as well as the the bait and casting so i don't know i'm I'm looking forward to hearing what you got to say today yeah it should be a fun time maybe that's why i don't catch any fish anymore brad i i just have way too many irons out there well you know what though ben it isn't always about the fish is it you know it's about the experience so i think uh we all get hung up on fish 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 but at the end of the day it's supposed to still be fun too yeah, I early in my marriage, my wife told me one time, fishing is supposed to be relaxing. It's not relaxing with you. And it's always <laughs> kind of been that way. <laughs> that's awesome. It's not that way with anybody that's fishing for muskies, is it? Uh, not that I know of, no. I think if you're I think if it's relaxing, you're doing it wrong. Or may or maybe we're doing it all wrong and we should approach it differently. It might be might be physically demanding, but it's still supposed to be fun. Come on. It's true. It's way more fun when they bite bread. You know that. I can't argue any of that. Yeah, best case scenario, it's fun for about 45 seconds. Correct. Yeah, you're, you're right about that, you know? Lots and lots of work for, like you just said, 45 seconds. <laughs> oh, craziness. I think that's that's a personality thing with musky guys, isn't it? I mean, to work that hard, it's, and I think it's an important thing for human beings. You see this crazy world we live in. People have way too much time on their hands, right? Fish come way too easy. Now everything's stocked. Bass guys can just go out and pound on them, but us crazy sadomasochistic musky guys like to go out there and just beat ourselves to death. It's definitely a personality. There's no doubt about that, Ben. I would, generally agree with all of that in the sense that you know it's amazing if if two musky guys they might not know each other but if they start really talking to each other they automatically are connected you know and and it's funny i I think i've said this before in a different podcast but it kind of relates back to the same guys that probably sit in a bow stand you know and it's the same kind of feeling and the same kind of ordeal really you know it's it's an interesting sport there's no doubt yeah, the same kind of idiot that takes the hardest fish to catch in the world, the muskie, and then says, I know, let's make it harder and grab a fly rod. <laughs> uh, that'd be you, Ben. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I have a few buddies that guide fly guys occasionally, and that's what I say that to them all the time. I'm like, why would you do that to yourself? I'm like, you take a fish like the muskie that's darn near impossible to catch some days anyways, and you make it even harder. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. That's something I haven't gotten into yet. Hopefully I don't, because I don't need it to be more of a struggle. <laughs> I haven't come up with the exact way to articulate it yet, but there's 
I'm working on it. There's definitely something to the cast itself, the fly cast itself. That's super rewarding when you just snap a tight loop 95 feet. That just feels incredible. It's I, I always relate it to golf. I'm not a golfer, but I hit one good golf shot in my life. And when I did, I'm like, okay, I get it. You spend all day trying to hit that shot again. And it, that's exactly that cast. It's When I was a little kid, I started bass fishing like everybody. And me and my brother, we called it stunt casting. We take spinner baits or scum frogs or that kind of thing. And we would just go through a, you know, super crazy dense lily pads, lay downs, garbage everywhere, and then just try to make the coolest cast through it. We didn't even necessarily care if we were catching fish. We weren't fishing lakes with a lot of fish in them. We were just stunt casting. And that was the whole fun of it was making the coolest cast, make that frog walk perfectly along that log and jump over that lily pad and stop in that little hole. And that was half the game. And that's kind of, there's something to that with the fly cast. The Ted Nugent talks about the mystical flight of the arrow. It's kind of the mystical flight of the fly line. Sometimes when you get that perfect, the timing's right, the rod loads right. And you really hit a long cast. It's, that in itself is rewarding. I could understand that, uh, Ben. With my <laughs> few years that I lived in Wyoming and and doing the trout fishing with fly rods, there's something special about it. And it really isn't totally about the size of the fish always, but a dry fly floating down a stream. I mean, it's, it's incredible strikes and it's really cool, like you just said. So, Ben, typically on these podcasts, we start out with the background on the on the angler. We get to know them, a little bit about them, where they came from, what got them into the species they're chasing now, what species they do chase in your instance, because I know you're kind of all over the place. Why don't you uh, why don't you give us, the listeners, kind of an idea of who, who you are and where you came from? Yeah, I, I, I grew up fishing like every good Minnesota kid. I literally had a rod in my hand since I was able to hold one. My dad and uncles were big fishermen. So fishing was always part of my life. And like any teen and early 20s, I got a little distracted and got a little off course and uh, ended up having to clean up my act. And I was really, I didn't know at the time I was looking for something, but it ended up being a way to refocus my addictive personality, if you will, became fishing. So I really, in those early years, I mean, it was nothing short of mental illness. And when we talk about fishing and mental illness, we definitely are talking about muskies. So that's really how I came to muskies. Uh, just a, a absolute, I mean, insane passion for catching the biggest possible fish I could catch in an area. And then I, even after muskies talking about big fish, I transitioned to like sturgeon and flathead catfish. I never, ever cared much about small fish. I wanted to catch the biggest fish I possibly could and and the hardest fish I possibly could. And uh, ultimately, that led me to muskies. And I actually, my first ever muskie follow was with a guy named Eric Jensen up in Hayward. And I, I'm sure a lot of listeners of this podcast know Steve Jensen. And I met those guys and, and Mike Keys in the early days. And that was fortunate to just run into that level of hardcore musky guy to even know that was a thing. Uh, and all of that, of course, corresponded to the boom in Minnesota stocking, the absolute peak of Minnesota musky stocking, which 
obviously corresponded with the advent of the cowgirl and the bulldog, two of the most revolutionary baits all at the same time came out. Minnesota stocking was at its peak and I had a raging addiction for catching muskies. So things all kind of came together in a perfect storm that really through no special skill or intelligence of my own, I was able to get way into muskie fishing right away and catch an absolute ton of fish, even though we had zero clue what we were doing and, and really learn a lot that way and, and kind of establish, I don't know, some sort of reputation. And that led me to guiding. And of course, my friendship to, with Mike Keys led to, to working on his TV show and things just kind of snowballed and spiderweb from there. I'm all over the place now. Well, speaking of all over the place now, why don't you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of your adventures down south? Because I know you're starting to chase a lot. You're starting to do more with saltwater fishing. I think maybe today on the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about the correlation between muskies and salt, if that's something that you're willing to talk about. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, yeah, you had the muskie addiction. Is Has that taken a backseat now to your addiction to saltwater fishing? I don't know if a backseat is the right word. Um, the saltwater is just, I, you know, I mentioned sturgeon and catfish. I was a river guy uh, growing up. I just was always drawn to rivers because of the crazy fish and the giant fish that were in them. Almost like a Jeremy Wade river monsters thing. Saltwater is that way for me. It's, you absolutely never know. I still catch something all the time. I have no idea what it is. I find new patterns and new ways to catch stuff and run into new things all the time. So it's still totally kid in a candy store mode in the salt. But my family vacationed in the Florida Keys every year. And uh, my parents would hire us a guide for one day. And after a bunch of years of that, we're kind of going, well, you know, for the same price as a guide one day, we could rent a boat for the week and get some rods. And we started doing that, just renting boats and trying to figure out how to entertain ourselves uh, as best we could, not, you know, being landlocked Midwesterners. And uh, it kind of grew from there until I finally, I had a, I, I had a, I used to say all the time, any, any girl that lasts more than two musky seasons. I mean, she had to make it through the whole winter. I would marry. And my current wife, Kelly made it through three winters before I finally asked her to marry me. But when I asked her to marry me, we, we both are people who are very focused on, on living our dreams. And we decided to buy a house in Southwest Florida on Marco Island on the Gulf side of fishery. I was completely unfamiliar with uh, but I, I also love tarpon and it was a great place to catch tarpon. So, uh, in 2011 and 12, we transitioned down there for the winters and started chartering down there. But in terms of muskies, it's, it's really interesting with the crossover to me. Uh, my, I came up muskie fishing on Lake Minnetonka with John Hoyer and he has transitioned to the walleye side and is on one of the most epic tears of tournament destruction ever uh, he had a first place nwt earlier this year followed it up with a second place on the cabela's national walleye tour and then just won a pro muskie event out here on lake minnetonka but we've been talking about this crossover and how well muskie guys seem to do and i think a lot of it has to do with that 
that pay and dues mentality, that understanding that you're going to have to work your ass off through days of nothing to get your reward. And when it comes to crossover, just starting with that foundation, musky guys do so well. And I, I know Brad's seen that too with his tentacles in the, in the industry. Musky guys doing really well outside of the musky world just because that absolute hard work, attention to details, maximize what few opportunities you're going to have. Isn't that right, Brad? Oh, they're hands down. You know, I mean, one of the things that I think a lot of musky anglers forget about, Ben, is, you know, whoever you talk to, people that have traveled around the world fishing every species, they will all tell you the same thing. Um, Larry Dahlberg is a great example. Fishing with him over a few years that I had the opportunity to do. You know, he's been everywhere. And if you visit with him at any point about muskies, he'll definitely tell you straight out, they're the hardest fish to catch. I mean, you can locate them, you know where they are, but doesn't mean that you can make them eat. And um, that's what makes them the toughest fish. There's some other fish out there that take forever to locate, but once you locate them, you can catch them. I think that's what uh, makes us all crazy in this whole sport of muskies. I think you've probably accomplished some of those tasks as well, Ben, in the sense that you have, you've got a ton of experience fishing all over the place and muskies definitely present a different challenge. And if you can catch muskies or you can locate muskies and you get that whole, the roots to that system, it makes all other fishing a lot easier. No doubt about it. Absolutely. When I moved to saltwater, I always heard, have you been permit fishing, Brad? Oh yeah. Yep. So we heard about permit. Oh, they're the hardest fish to catch in the world, mostly coming out of the Keys. Permit are so, oh, they're muskies and permit are the two hardest fish in the world to catch. Well, anybody who lives on the East Coast of Florida thinks permit are really hard to catch. Anybody who lives on the West Coast of Florida and sees offshore aggregations of permit, if you have a crab, you will catch a permit. Every single crab equals one permit. That's how easy they are to catch in some situations. So it's, I still, I've, I've been extremely fortunate in my life and I have fished uh, quite a bit all over the world. I've caught a 533 pound blue Marlin. I've done the Alaska thing. Um, I, I recently was stream trout fishing in South Africa. Um, I've been a lot of places. I've been really lucky in that regard. And, and it always comes back to, to musky fishing. It, it's, it's a different thing entirely. There's no question about it. And there's, it's, it's been really interesting going to the fly side, especially with, uh, if every, the listeners know the story, we, we caught a, a world record. I just say it's a world record. Um, it was certified, but no one's, it, it was a 57 by 26 and a half inch muskie caught on Lake Malax by Robert Hawkins on a fly. I, I'm, virtually certain no one's ever even come close um there's some talk out east but nothing to verify it but transitioning to the fly side those guys the stream trout nuts the guys who tarpon fish they ask me about muskies all the big name guides around the country who have all these incredible fisheries these true blue blue ribbon fly fishing places and they want to come and catch muskies on fly or go out to the virginias and catch muskies on fly it's the it buzz species in fly fishing right now and that's that was interesting to me transitioning i was a little shocked by that 
Yeah, that uh, is that available to watch out there on YouTube? I believe it is, isn't it, Ben? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it is. Yeah. I think I ran into that over this past winter. I remember the day it happened and uh, got to see the pictures right away. But you know, to be able to watch it on YouTube, it's pretty incredible. And you guys were stoked for sure. Well, and that that video, I always want to tell that story so people know because it's a a really cool musky only kind of story only in the world of muskies so you know all of us gear guys that's what fly guys call traditional fishermen gear guys uh have been on that giant fish molax late fall stuff vermilion late fall stuff uh for a handful of years but really outside of the very hardcore community that is not a really well-known thing um, outside of people who really know what's going on with that Cisco spawn and all that. So, uh, in, uh, I recently, just before the world record, two years before I had met Robert Hawkins and Gabe Schubert from Bob Mitchell's fly shop at the Minnesota Muskie Expo. And I had a fly rod forever and I've been talking about doing it. And we never, just never got around to it. So I met those guys and I said, man, I really want to get into this. And they hooked me up with another buddy of theirs to buy some flies. So I met this guy on Minnetonka, and we went down to the dock at uh, Cove and made a couple casts. And I saw these flies, and the guy's name is Russ Gontarek. I turned to Russ, and I said, we're going to break the world record. I mean, these flies were incredible. The way they swam, the way they moved, how they looked, their big, giant deer hair flies. I'd never seen anything like it. And I knew if I could, those guys just weren't getting those flies in front of these fish. They're river guys. They don't really get lakes. They don't do a ton of lake stuff. They don't know where the big ones are. So right when I saw that fly, I'm like, oh, oh boy, because the fly records were pretty small at the time. Uh, I think the biggest that any organization recognized was around 52, like 37 pounds. And I knew if we could hook and land a fish on Mille Lacs in the fall, it would probably beat that. So the four of us started on this quest to catch a world record on a fly. And we had everything. We fished an entire season out there. We had one follow, 14 days on Mille Lacs in the fall, throwing fly rods, elbows being destroyed, shoulders being destroyed, hands being destroyed, freezing. I mean, the worst, everybody who's fished late fall knows it's the worst kind of pain there is. Did that for a whole season for one follow. And the next season, literally, I don't know even where to this day it came from, but we weren't even remotely phased by the previous season. We were 100% stoked, ready to go for the second year. And we fished 10 days before that fish was caught. And the thing, the main thing that happened between year one and year two was Robert was having a lot of elbow problems and started designing a two-hand rod. And he came up with this great big surf casting 10-foot rod and built it with a fly reel seat on it and fly guides and was two-hand casting with that rod. And of course, that's the rod he caught the record on. So it was, the flies came from Russ and Gabe, mostly Gabe. Gabe and Russ designed these flies the spots came from me the fish came from 
from me and the rod came from Robert. So literally, and Gabe, Robert, and I were in the boat when we caught it. It literally was as team as team gets. We were, we each contributed what we contributed and it worked out. That's pretty interesting. You say it two-handed. I, I guess I'm not familiar with that, Ben. Can you kind of explain how that two-handed casting works on a fly rod? Yeah, you, you just check out the video. There's definitely some some casting in that video. You can see how he's throwing it, but it, it's just that we use we like to use natural materials with these flies. And if you want to get in the weeds on that, we totally can. Why we do that? It's super important, but they're really hard to cast. They're very heavy. Um, we generally do what's called water loading. So we'll throw the fly in the water behind us and then pick the whole line up and fly out of the water and throw it forward. The double haul cast, traditional fly cast, with that fly in the air the whole time with multiple back casts, it's just too hard on the body uh, to continue to do for days on end. You just, it's not sustainable. So we've modified the cast. And when I say we, I, I can't emphasize enough this stuff. The groundwork for all of this had been laid. Guys like Blaine Chocolate, Brad Bone, um, people who really develop modern musky fly fishing. I I'm, came very late to the picture and just thought this has advanced to the point where we got to get it on some of these big fish patterns that we have been taking advantage of. What size are those flies? Um, give us an idea of, you know, physical size of the fly. And and here's the deal. You can't buy them. I mean, there's a few guys that sell them. There's a, a few semi-professional outfits to get them. Um, so each one is, is handcrafted. I mean, I only fish my own flies. Most musky fly guys, like, have to do stuff the hard way. So that means you learn to tie your own flies. So they are wildly variable but we're talking about big double tandem hook flies that range from say 12 inches to i have one that's 23 inches with triple uh triple hook setup on it so they run the gamut but literally every fly is its own unique thing interesting so are you taking some of these flies that you're using for muskies and and using them on other species as well yeah they yes i sent some uh with john hoyer over to mongolia for timing they were effective there although they didn't last long uh and I, we definitely use them tarpon fishing especially down the everglades those tarpon are eating real big baits they're eating big roe mullet big female uh mullet and even catfish and big ladyfish so our the fly we tie that 12 to 16 inch range um is really good for tarpon the problem is each one of these flies takes maybe two to three hours or more on the vice and it's you know a bucktail and a half into there <laughs> a lot of feathers so it's you got thirty dollars and three, four hours into this fly, and then you throw it to a tarpon and break it off. So it's not real practical for that. But, I mean, anything that eats big prey will absolutely eat these flies. Even the big musky ones are remarkably good for smallmouth. We catch a lot of big smallmouth on big articulated musky flies. 
Well, if, if anybody out there that's listening hasn't caught fish on a fly rod, um, <laughs> it's definitely intriguing and, and there's nothing else like it really. But, uh, so I, I'm curious though, you know, are you stripping the line in by hand then, Ben? Can you kind of explain, you know, the process once that flies casted and it's out there? Um, once that flies casted and out there, the, I mean, the, the thing that musky guys will recognize as a phantom or a, or a hellhound, a walk the dog style, uh, a peeler, that kind of bait, uh, that kind of lure is what we're doing. So we're, we're doing hard strips, even with a little rod articulation to to just get that fly to jerk sideways and walk the dog back and forth and that kick that sideways turn is absolutely key especially in lakes especially in still water you you want a fly that turns and the reason we want it to turn is because if you picture uh take a two by four and stand in the water and hold it the long way. If you push it forward, it's not going to move that much water. If you take that thing and turn it sideways and sweep it, it's going to send out this big wave. So that's the kick is very important. That displaces a ton of water, makes a ton of racket in the water. And those of us who come from the gear side just intuitively understand that what we're keying on with muskies generally is the lateral line. Uh, they're not very sight feeder type fish they're they're definitely lateral line feeders so we need to move as much water and make as much racket with something that doesn't mechanically inherently make noise or racket and the way we do that is by pushing water and then from there um i, I think that's super interesting but uh, what what weight fly rod are you using you know what kind of um line you're you're choosing to use and so on and so forth all right, so here's the deal. You you go to a lot of fly shops, and they're going to tell you that a 10-weight is fine. Even You could even get by with a 9-weight. Uh, if you're going to throw these big flies, if you really want to move water, you're, that's not going to work for you. 11-weight, I mean, I have 10-weights. I, I use them for intermediate lines with small flies um, in the spring or smaller rivers. But I, I generally... I'm always using a very heavy sink tip line and a very big fly. I mean, by fly standards, everything we throw is a very big fly. So we, everybody I know who, who's, you know, really high end and is fishing for good sized fish is 11 and up. And I mentioned before, we, we tie these out of deer hair. And then I mentioned the, the displacement thing. That's the key. So Really, I can't explain the gear without explaining that. The deal is deer hair is buoyant. Uh, a lot of the synthetics you're going to find out there are not. So while they're much easier to cast, they're not displacing nearly as much water. And, and the simple way to understand that is when I throw a deer hair fly out there, it's going to just lay there on the surface above the water. And I need a sink tip line to pull it down. If if I'm throwing a big fly on an intermediate line, it, the line won't even be heavy enough to pull the fly underwater. It'll just stay on the surface as I strip it. So I want to throw a heavy line with a buoyant fly, and that heavy line is going to pull that fly underwater. So that means the gear all has to be upside to understand that. Even though I'm throwing an 11-weight rod, I'm probably throwing a 12-weight line. And 
and everything is beefed up just so I can drag that fly underwater. That makes sense. Um, how many pound test tippets are you using then? You know, uh, we, we don't do anything fancy. And, and I've watched a lot of the fly guys around, and it seems like everybody's fairly on the same page. Again, these flies are, like, ultimately valuable, and there's logs all over the place and rocks on these rivers. So most guys are running straight 40-pound fluorocarbon from the fly line to uh, either a, an 80-pound fluoro tippet or i i use a, a product called uh, Cortland toothy critter in 50 pound it's tieable stainless wire uh, that Cortland that makes about the best knots of everything i've found and how long are you generally using them that leader that leader yeah. is maybe 10 or 12 inches i mean it depends on uh that tieable stuff has a coating on the outside of it and it tends to get damaged. So if I'm fishing a real rocky, shallow river, I'll probably tie a little bit longer leader, knowing during the dam to clip a couple chunks off and retie my snap on. See, I would have assumed that it would have been a little longer. And, you know, my fly fishing, I'm, I'm looking at a tapered tippet and, you know, the whole to get those flies to float and so on and so forth but okay i'm i'm sorry i'm talking about just that just the tippet just, piece okay yeah, yeah just the end so i do about a a three three and a half four foot section of okay of the 40 pound fluorocarbon and either not that directly to about a foot piece of uh tieable wire or a foot piece of 80 pound fluorocarbon uh and that's my leader system. Sorry. No, that's fine, Ben. I, what you're doing is you're creating a chew point, no different than what we would do with a bait caster. So, yeah, um, whether you're using a steel leader or fluorocarbon, what have you. Yeah. Like, no, that's interesting. It's super cool. Um, have you ever done it with top water? Like, you know, you're saying how buoyant this is. Have you played with uh, a fly that's basically like a walk the dog top water? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, you know, and I haven't enough. I, I, I'm so all over the map as we talked about. I don't get enough time to really experiment with things anymore lately. So, uh, yes, we do throw top water. Uh, it is effective. I see a lot more popper style, and uh, it's called a gurgler, sort of a folded flat foam style top waters than what we would be used to or a big you know chugger head popper head style fly but what i think would be interesting is to to make one of those real buoyant flies and throw it on a floating line so it kind of does that snake on the surface like a hog wobbler yeah I but think I, I have not had enough time to play with that we got my head spinning a little bit here now i'm now i'm a bait builder again <laughs> yeah yeah there you go <laughs> Uh, I'm just over here thinking about how to catch these things with a fly and thinking to myself, I don't really think I want to get involved in this. Well, I'll <laughs> tell you what, there's the, the, a couple other things about the fly. In addition to just the cast being rewarding, they fight totally differently on a fly. I don't know if you guys, if you want to watch some cool videos, there's a couple guys, Eric and Matt Grzewski out on uh, Lake St. Clair and they catch a ton of fish on flies. But if you watch their videos, you'll see what I'm talking about. They fight absolutely. It's different when you set the hook on a nine foot 
double extra heavy predator with a supermodel on it and just turn that fish's head sideways, they react completely different than when you set a strip set into them with a high stretch, you know, light leader set up and set the hook and they swim. I mean, if you really pay attention on gear, especially big plastics, um, big things in their mouth, muskies don't swim a lot when we fight them. Sometimes when you catch them on a small bucktail, they'll swim some, but a lot of the fish we catch are just shaking their head. They're just trying to get that thing out of their face and they don't even realize they're being pulled towards the boat. But on a fly rod, they feel like they got a chance. So they make incredible runs. Some of the most ridiculous jumps I've ever seen have all been on flies. That's awesome. It's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, uh, another whole world to this whole musky game for sure. Uh So if, if a listener's out there and they're like, man, that's for me, I really want to do this. What's the best way, Ben? I mean, how do you really, I mean, I know you said that you're kind of a pioneer in the sense because you're making your own stuff. Um, you're doing, you know, whatever it takes to try different things to, to elevate that whole side of the game. But ultimately, I mean, I know the fly shops are out there. Um, it's not really a cheap endeavor either, is it? it? You know, I thought that, and and let me just say real quick, I am not the pioneer, but I just happened to come in just like gear musky fishing. I came in when this perfect foundation had already been laid, that I could just put the last piece in there and away we went. So. I just want to give credit to the actual pioneers. Well, uh, I, I see what you're saying there, Ben. But what I mean is, I mean, even if I was to go jump into a fly shop, say, hey, I need a 10-weight fly rod. I'm going to go musky fish and blah, blah, blah. It's still kind of pioneering in a sense. I mean, it's not like here's the package you need. Here's the flies that you need to buy. Um, from what I'm hearing, you're still kind of doing your own little deal. Oh, and it's that's half the fun, Brad. It, there is still room for innovation in musky fly fishing. And it, that sounds minuscule, but it's not, it's amazing how many things there isn't a ton of room left. I mean, every version of soft plastic has been designed for bass. I mean, not that there's not innovation happening all the time, but there's really ground level room for innovation and in fly fishing for muskies. And I mean, it, it you'll find a wild variation if you go from the guys who are doing it in West Virginia to the guys who are doing it in Tennessee to the guys who are doing it out east to the guys who are on St. Clair to us in Minnesota and northern Wisconsin. It's going to be different everywhere you go. It's it's really early in the process. So totally there is some pioneering still going on. But the best thing, I mean, the best thing you can do is is – start getting into the network. I mean, I say I give credit to the pioneers and I, I give credit to, to guys like you, Brad, and like Jason Hammernick and Luke Ronestrand. And even before that, Bob Mesa Comer, um, I, I did really well before Cowgirls came out on the Dave DeRazio, uh, boo tail. Wasn't that DeRazio? Those boo tails with the big double collar. Yep. Yep. You're correct. Yeah, so I mean that everything we do is is on the backs of the pioneers who came before. Yeah, I. So tell me, you know, where is this network? How do you get get involved with the network of guys? 
there's a ton of ways we have the internet man uh, we have facebook instagram instagram is where the fishermen are these days youtube um and then the fly shops too it, you know i can speak locally here bob mitchell's fly shop robert hawkins the current world record holder has a replica of that fly in his shop the dude is a born and bred montana bozeman montana native hardcore trout guy and he has absolutely lost his mind for muskies so he's absolutely one of the best guys you can possibly go to bob mitchell's fly shop he is an inst a fly casting instructor so everything you need they can provide it um the fly angler of course associated with thorn brothers scott stroof up there uh they can get you dialed absolutely as well and then i mean if if you can afford it getting a guide is absolutely i mean it will shorten the I say that as a guide and I hear that all the time and it's, it's almost cringeworthy, but at the same time, it's, it's so absolutely true. It sounds like a sales pitch, but it, you will learn so much in one day, just having somebody to bounce stuff off and see it in the boat and see how they work their boat and see what they're looking for and how they cast. I mean, it's, it's invaluable and will jump you light years ahead. Uh, get out with a guide brad bone one of the most famous musky guides out there up in hayward huge tremendous numbers of fish you go with brad you're probably going to catch a fish there's tons of guys in minnesota kip veith um, wildwood float trips uh gabe schubert uh, just a ton of guys uh all around luke luke swanson young guy just crazy ambitious uh Got a really nice jet boat. He'll get you all over the place. But give one of those guys a call. Get out with a guide. Chris Willen down in uh, another great option with guides is go hire Chris Willen in the wintertime in Tennessee. I keep saying I'm going to do that. But there are guides out there doing it a lot more these days. It's so invaluable to, to hook up with those guys. That's good stuff. I think you provided a ton there for sure. Um, I know I've seen you on Keys doing it. Um, I've seen you doing it on the YouTube. I'm trying to remember, where can you see that YouTube video that we were talking about of that world record? If you just Google world record musky on fly, it comes up about 11 times. Okay, perfect, perfect. Um, have you ever watched the uh, fly versus jerk? Um, so oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah another Kind of relates back to that. Um, fly angling for, um, for northern pike and then... Uh, to kind of do a competition. I, I personally haven't watched much of it, but I did check it out a little bit. Well, and they're, I mean, in terms of technology, they are light years ahead of us in terms of pike specific fly gear. Uh, those tube flies they're tying, they, they have that really, really innovative stuff going on over there. And you're going to see some of that start crossing over more uh, than it has if U.S. manufacturers don't start getting some stuff out um yeah that that's they're really what for those who don't know what bass fishing is in the u.s pike fishing is in scandinavia it's really gotten to be a monstrous thing with its whole supporting its entire own industry and vision fly is one of the companies over there that's just doing incredible stuff are they not selling here and distributing in the u.s currently not that I'm aware of, no, they're not. 
Okay. But okay. but the, the materials and the concepts are do-it-yourself-able, DIY-able. Sure. It sounds like Team Rhino needs a, a new uh, part of a store. There you go. <laughs> yeah, kind of. The fly. Team Rhino fly. I've, talked, I've had people talk to me about it. It's just not something I know enough about right now. I know a lot about the gear side. I don't know a lot about the fly side. In fact, listening to Ben, I mean, realize how little I even know about flies. It gave me a really good education today on just the gear that you need to do it. So Ben, not to shift away from TRO having fly stuff, but I have we have I get emails from guys that listen, you know, pike fishermen that listen to the podcast. I want to try to tie a couple things in maybe with pike fishing. So if somebody wanted to fly fish for pike, is there what type of gear would you use or recommend for that for guys that listen that are primarily pike fishing? I mean, listen, if you've done some fly fishing, you know the difference. If you're going from from gear to fly i mean you're still gonna be fine even with small pike on an 11 weight rod they will bend the crap out of an 11 weight rod and you'll have to play them a little bit but you just downsize the same stuff and i mean pike are absolutely built for flies any jerkbait fisherman any soft plastic fisherman knows they just cannot resist that pause and it's always a ridiculous high speed visual strike on flies i mean it, it it's every bit what musky fishing is and there are some big pike outfits out there that's how popular pike fly fishing is even here i mean here by here i mean the U- u.s and canada there's some unbelievable pike fly fishing opportunities and smallmouth i mean the smallmouth fisheries we're blessed with here, the small rivers with big, beautiful fish in them, these small rivers get so little attention. People would be shocked. I mean, you go to Malax. I was just at Malax this weekend, and it's you're just blown away by how many rigs are there. But these rivers are untouched. I mean, untouched. And you can get out there in a cheap little boat or a kayak, uh, and really do some damage you can just wade fish a lot of these rivers fly fishing for smallmouth i mean it smallmouth again are absolutely built for flies it's almost starting to make me want to go out and chase these things but i just can't do it i can't i can't handle another obsession you know how much stuff i'll have it's <laughs> unbelievable already what i have you know how it is with busky guys i can only imagine how how bitten by it'd be oh yeah i got a an acquaintance of mine, uh, Eric Tui, he guides up by the Hayward area. He keeps, every time I talk to him, he wants to go, you know, get in on the flies because he's all about it. He talks about gear and fly guys all the time, and that's what his his deal is. But so far, I've resisted. I just can't do it. <laughs> well, Tui's one of the best. I know him. I've met him a few times. you got a good contact there. Uh, unfortunately, that is literally half the battle. If you got somebody who, who you can kind of go to, man, that helps a lot. And Tui's a good one. He he's a guide up in the Hayward area, right? Yep. Yeah, he does. He guides up there, and he's always he he would much rather chase him fly fishing than gear fishing all the time. And he's it's like every time like the few times I talk to him, I see him up in Hayward a couple times a year, and I talk to him, and he's always trying to get us to go fly fishing. But so far, like I said, I just I have such a hard time. Like I said, muskies are so tough already that I have a hard time even switching up yet to go to that, and then just you know, diving into a whole new set of gear and a whole new set of stuff to learn spots wise that I'm sure it's all, all relative, but I just can't do it yet. So Brad asked, and I realized I forgot about the price it mentioned. It's expensive. It, it 
really compared to gear fishing, it's not at all expensive. And I'll tell you this, I've done a lot of guiding, you know, all day musky live bait, full day musky artificial. Uh, I do these God awful shark fishing trips in the saltwater where I got a chum all day. And I'm, when it comes to gear maintenance, boat cleanliness, how much gear you have to bring, fly fishing is the cleanest, lightest, smallest amount of gear of any kind of fishing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like when I've been going for a bunch of days in the salt water and I got to throw my cast net and catch bait, cover the boat with jellyfish and scales and get the bait. And then we go out and we're chumming all day and we gaff a couple cobia and my boat's covered with blood and we break two rods and I come in and I'm going fly fishing the next day. It's like, Oh, thank God. Just throw everything out of the boat, throw two boxes and four rods in there and away we go. So it isn't, the gear really isn't too bad. I mean, if you were going to go out in Minnesota and fly fish for smallies and muskies and pike, all you really need is an eight weight and an 11 weight. Those are the two rods I get. And the rod I started with, it's a great rod for the price is the Reddington Predator. I think it's retail in the mid two fifties, somewhere in there. And then there are myriad rods or reels, excuse me, that are, you know, sub 150 bucks. So, you know, 110, 120s in there that are really great reels. So you, and then you're looking at, you know, 80 to 110 bucks for a line plus some leader materials. You can be on the water with an absolutely proficient, really, really good setup for under 500 bucks, you know, around 500 bucks, let's just say 500 bucks ish. You can be out there fly fishing with a full setup for muskies and small muskies. Yeah. That isn't as bad as I thought it would be. No. Um, you know, there's a side to the fly fishing side that, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of money involved when you kind of elevate. And I guess that's what I was thinking of. I, I figured in the muskie realm of this, it would be even further elevated, but that's interesting yeah you can get as nuts as you want there are twelve hundred dollar fly rods out there and and thousand dollar you know machine fly reels but you really technologies and manufacturing's advanced to a point that you know we use i use a lot of uh, a reel called a reddington behemoth i think it's like 112 bucks or something it's a perfect musky reel we're not going to be burning drags here in the midwest you know if you if you want some salt crossover you're gonna have to spend a little bit more just to get a better drag and a sealed drag so you're not getting salt in there but if you're just freshwater fishing um you don't have to get carried away with the drag system you really need a round thing to hold line on uh, at the end of the day that's 95 percent of what a reel is going to be in freshwater we're i mean most muskies we're stripping in we're, we're not generally not uh putting muskies on the reel on occasion in a river situation along cast and current a fish might end up on the reel but most of the time we're just stripping everything in smallmouth and muskies that's good stuff good stuff so ben we had talked we had talked about the gear uh, rods reels as far as like the flies themselves, I mean, do you typically go out there like a musky angler does and have a tackle box full of stuff, or are you going out there with like five flies for the day? 
you're going out there with just a couple flies. We just don't have the options in terms of what the flies can do. And now I say that, and, and you start to get into gray area with what is and what isn't fly fishing purists kind of stick to to flies there have been over the years some uh flies with lips on them that kind of swim a little bit and you know guys have tied in a a spinner blade on the back or a spinner blade on a leader uh there's been plenty of that but uh, uh, some of the purists start to say that's getting away from fly fishing so when i go out on the water i, I only have a couple options and it's it's not it's it's maybe this one's action is a little more subtle this one has a really big action and then color and size uh and, and in some cases i will still throw singles uh single non-articulated flies but generally i'm throwing articulated flies and what i mean by articulated flies is uh, basically three or four flies attached together with uh, a couple of just we call them shanks just pieces of metal looped and pieces of metal between two hooks uh so mostly what i'm throwing are double so two hooks with an articulated section in between uh i do still throw some single hooks with no articulation uh but generally it's a couple of flies now there's a ton more variables than that so you're going to bring a, a handful of flies then you're going to bring a handful of lines. So the lines are what determine our depth. So a floating line with a sinking fly can keep a fly up near the surface. A floating line with a floating fly can be a topwater. An intermediate line with a floating fly might still be on top. An intermediate with a sinking fly. So you, you understand that there's tons of variables in line. That's really what our variable is so it's a combination of a line and a fly cool i think that'll help a lot of guys out or i mean at least guys that want a little bit of information and i'm sure fly fishing isn't for everybody same as muskie fishing isn't for everybody yeah yeah exactly and if you if you really want to get carried away the with the variables you you can change the lengths of things as well so if i'm say casting a sink tip line up onto shallow weeds i'll use a real long leader that way the first part of my retrieve, the fly will be floating and then it'll pull down to the belly in the line. If I'm fishing a fast river and I want to get deep, I might do a really short leader with a really short sink tip. That way that whole package sinks very quickly when it lands, I can get next to that log. The variables are still there. It's just not as simple as clicking on a new lure like it is in gear. We have to think about our line, our leader. Is it a full sink? Is it a sink tip? Is it a full intermediate? Is it an intermediate tip? Is it a hover style line? That's good. The more options that you throw up, the more things I got to think about, the less less likely I want to go fly fishing right now. In the beginning, I was like, eh, hey, maybe this is for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't... You, and I, 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 I say all this, and, and it's the same as gear fishing. At the end of the day, you probably need a rubber and a jerkbait rod and a, something you can throw bucktails and topwaters with, really, right? I mean, most of our fish are still coming on bucktails, topwater, and plastics. So you can get as carried away as you want, but you can also super simplify. And in fly fishing, super simple is is 
the name of the game. You don't have to get nuts. I just have to get nuts with everything. That's why I'm a musky guy. That's what I was just going to say. I'm like, if you've seen Brad's bait collection, if you've seen my bait collection, I guarantee the two of us would absolutely get nuts with it. I, I would be willing to bet we can't just take it and yeah. moderately get involved. I just can't see it happening. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Larry Dahlberg earlier. He's been a huge influence on me. But I said, when I, one of the times I first met him, I said, oh, I love your Alumalite stuff. I'm a bait maker. And he said, of course you are. You're a musky fisherman. There's no musky fisherman that's not a bait maker. That kind of it goes twofold with the fly side, too, it sounds like. So that's an intriguing as well. I yeah, think that's that- the one big thing. It, barrier to entry is the flies uh you got it the the store-bought real simple flies that you're going to find pre-packaged mass manufactured are not going to get near the response bob mitchell's does sell those flies uh robert and another guy tie them and that's the fly the world record was caught on but they're so time consuming and there's no margin i mean they basically have them just to get people in the store but it's not a money-making proposition uh and then there's a guy uh rip lips on facebook rip lips flies brian he can tie up flies too uh but the flies are the tough part you want to and guys who have a background in what they're looking for in terms of bait action will know when they get the right fly that's good stuff i uh i think jeff is probably closer than I am in the sense that I've done some fly fishing, but I think, you know, it kind of ties back to uh, Jeff and, and his wishes to buy a river boat. Um, he's looking at a jet boat. So I don't know, Jeff, I think this is probably uh, in your future. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I probably got as much out of this podcast as any listener is going to get out of it. It's definitely got my, it's definitely got my wheels turning kind of a, kind of a 180. I thought we were going to talk a little bit more about salt water fishing in relation to musky fishing but we haven't ever talked about fly fishing on the podcast so this is actually a really good conversation it's probably not going to work out well for my pocketbook because i know i have a bunch of friends and they they're into it i shouldn't say a bunch i got a handful of guys because i don't know that the fly fishing musky community is real huge but i have some friends that are into it and they keep telling me that i should play around in it because it's fun but i just i'm not ready to go down that road yet well, the rib, the river boats have come a long way too, man. I've been in some really nice little jet sleds, little forty horse jets on them. They're rowable. You can put a, you know, these ridiculous trolling motors we have on them. I mean, it, you want to talk about easy? Get an Altera in the in the river in the current. I mean, it's it, the technology's gotten so ridiculous. We're so spoiled with this stuff, but. Man, there are some cool jet boats out there. So, you know, that right there, Brad, um, that's that's up my alley, Brad. As you mentioned, that's that's the next purchase. I'm getting a jet boat. I'm going to go play around on some rivers, do some exploring, you know, like with Ben talking about wading some of these smaller rivers, getting on the, off the beaten path. Like that's the type of stuff that I like for, I like to do now. That Those are adventures that are more fun to me. The Green Bay thing is great. I live literally 40 minutes from Green Bay. I haven't put my boat in Green Bay in two years probably just because it's kind of a zoo, not really my thing. My day-to-day life is pretty hectic. I run a couple businesses. I have four kids. Sometimes you just want to get away, and growing to Green Bay is not getting away. That's not relaxing fishing to me. That's I mean, If you're out there, that's a good chance you got a shot at a really giant fish, but I'd rather take like a smaller fish right now 
and just get away from life, I guess. Man, those, yeah. I'm telling you, Jeff, those river fish, if you're talking about wanting a fishery that's consistent, I mean, rivers are as consistent as their flow. So if the flow's right, but the current negates so many of the factors that, that put fish down in lakes. I mean, it's if you want consistent bang for your buck, most action for your time on the water, and you're not hung up on catching a 56-incher, rivers are incredible for that incredible for that it's it the the flow basically seasonally what we're looking for it, it, as fishermen is is concentration things anything that's going to concentrate fish because we can't cover enough water to target just one in muskies if it, so when those things go away when we have bad moons or the weather's unstable or the water temp has them in every conceivable depth that's not happening on rivers there the concentrating factor in rivers is always and will always be current sometimes it's current related to depth but it's that current is always going to be there which means there's always going to be some predictability to the location of the fish which sounds simple but it's a it's a huge factor in what we do it, when it's tough on lakes, it's because there are no concentrating factors happening at that moment. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, Ben. Um, you know, a, a video that's out there by a couple of buddies of Jeff and I's um, is river rutted, and basically <laughs> they're not fly fishing, but what they're doing is they're they're running little tiny boats, you know, ten, twelve foot boats, and floating rivers, and it, it's pretty bizarre and it kind of goes back to what Jeff said, our hectic lives. Um, it isn't always about the size of the fish. It's about the experience and that river rooted on YouTube is something you guys should check out. Well, and I, and I say, if you're not interested in catching 56 inches, you said you live on green Bay or Appleton near green Bay, those rivers, you catch a 56. Those rivers are probably at a certain time of year are, are probably holding a fish that could compete with Robert's world record. I, I, I know they are. I mean, we know people who have caught them in those rivers. Oh yeah, for sure. By far. You're right about that, Ben. I mean, that's been something that's been a pretty good little secret for a long time. And <laughs> they, uh, it's been, been exposed in the last couple of years, but, uh, definitely hold some giant fish. There's no doubt about that. Well, I, I had an opportunity to do a really cool boat trip, uh, Last season, my wife and I took a boat from Florida up the East Coast through the Hudson River, through the Erie Canal, and then through the Great Lakes, up through the Trent Severn Waterway, through Georgian Bay, uh, basically a, a boat trip through the Great Lakes. And even the Erie Canal, for those who don't know, the Erie Canal is stocked with muskies, tiger muskies. But basically every river off the Great Lakes, all of the Great Lakes, every river, is holding muskies uh, almost everyone i mean chances are if it's a river off the great lakes it's holding muskies that I, I people just don't seem to know that i mean the rivers in the up the rivers uh off huron lake huron um just endless amounts of rivers with muskies and some really cool you know i mean jeff said it earlier exploring i mean 
that's part of this whole gig too, as well. You know, you get out there and, and, and you don't know for sure, but the only way somebody's going to learn is if they get out there and actually go after it. I was looking at some of those rivers up in the UP yesterday. I was actually doing a little bit of research on them. To me, the one the one limiting factor sometimes is like just trying to figure out where you're going to be able to put a boat in or get access to it. Because I still have a like some of these little rivers I've seen have muskies in them. I'm guessing you know 40 incher would probably be a good one, but trying to figure out where I got to get my boat in. I got to play around with that stuff a little bit more because I even have a little row trolling boat. It's like a kind of stable canoe, sort of like the ones that Keys fishes out of, not exactly a golden hawk, but it's similar to it. And those, like the, I, I could even take that out fishing for them too. So I have a few different options that wouldn't necessarily require a jet if the river's even super small. And I know there's some of that out there too. Just a lot of different cool stuff. I think I just got to quit working, Brad, so we can just go travel around and do cool adventures all the time. Man, if somebody, if you guys have been to ICAST the last couple of years, the amount of small boats, uh, kayaks, paddle boats, micro skiffs, and the accessories for them, I mean, it's insane. There are some unbelievable rigs you can get on a ton of water with for way under five grand. You know, in some cases, less than a thousand bucks, you can get a real, real seaworthy kayak and get into some of those places and you're not going to be limited by your craft and you will have every bit as good of fishing in some of those locations, especially if you really dig as a guy with a big boat running the big popular lakes and he's going to have to deal with traffic and pressure and you're not. So, I mean that take advantage of that, that I don't know if you guys have seen that stuff, but the kayak stuff all over the country is just exploding. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a ton of that on YouTube as well. Um, lots of exposure on Instagram. Um, there's a bunch of people that are just pure kayak fishing today. Yeah, there's kayak bassing. I just heard you talk about Instagram and YouTube in the same sentence. <laughs> yeah, I'm old, but I, I still check that stuff out, I guess. Yeah, you do. When people mention Brad Hoppy, the first thing they think is social media. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good, Ben. <laughs> well, I'm no, I'm no better. I I've never ever Facebooked. Um, Carrie takes care of that. Um, I will say that I do enjoy looking at Instagram, and I think it's the visual aspect of, um, of photos. And um, I don't know. I like that side of it. I I mentioned when we talked about muskies that I'm a product of the stocking boom and and some really cool lures coming out, but. Also, we're we're all a product of the information age. I mean, the chips we have in our graphs, the chat rooms and and forums online, the articles you have access to. The you can order lures from Sweden and have them here in four days. I mean, it's the amount of stuff out there. If a guy wants to learn a fishery, if somebody wants to get excuse me, a guy or a gal wants to learn a fishery. Somebody wants to get into fly fishing or saltwater fishing or something outside their comfort zone. You want to look at reviews on kayaks. I mean, the information we have access to just, uh, we're all in the same age range compared to what we came up with. You know, I, I, we all, I'm sure remember fishing with those little plastic maps or paper maps, uh, what we have access to now, if you just do a little bit of homework, man, you're going to shorten the learning curve. I'm really jealous. 
Yeah, there's no doubt, Ben. I mean, we all started that way. And I, I think we've touched on this many times on the podcast. You know, I, I spent countless, countless hours figuring out my, my maps when GPS came out as far as, okay, this is a point. I'm going to mark the tip of this point. Boom. You know, you, you lay a waypoint. And uh, I'll never forget when map cards became available for like 100, 150 bucks. And all of my work and all of those hours were exposed overnight. And it was, it was kind of mind boggling. It really truly was. But um, are you playing with, with side scan or live scope? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, side imaging, in my opinion, is probably a larger tool than, than map cards at this point. I was talking to a guy over the weekend up at Mille Lacs and very serious guy didn't have side image on his boat. And I, it just struck me that, I mean, that is absolutely standard equipment. Now side image is the general sonar that we're all running all the time. The highest end guys are all, have a side scan screen on at all times and it has absolutely been a game changer people are resistant to that to learning that man you got to get on it it's the next thing and and i'm not real familiar with this live scope and i like to kind of take a minute on things and really try to understand if it's helping people catch fish because sometimes we may be inclined to put a ton of effort or energy into a variable that isn't really changing the numbers that much but these guys who are paying close attention to their both those live scope and side scan are winning tournaments and putting more fish in the boat than guys who aren't that's absolutely clear now so it, it's worth it man the, this live scope is the next thing i mean if you guys if people have not seen aaron weaves uncut angling video on jigging with that live scope it is the most impressive unbelievably cool piece of video i've maybe ever seen in my life yeah that is incredible um and to relate that back i have a, a good friend of mine that's a walleye guide and he uses a side imaging to locate fish and then once he's located those walleyes he's basically using that live scope and uh targeting them and he he definitely thinks that it has doubled his catch and the reason he says that is you pound out a bunch of these walleyes off of one little spot, and then you use your live scope to kind of direct it, and, oh, they moved over there. And then, boom, 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 you hammer them there. And um, I know it's helped them win money in tournaments and so on and so forth. I mean, it, it's really, truly bizarre. It really is, Ben. Yeah, it's – I mean, in saltwater, it is – so ridiculous i mean so ridiculous we're able to fish for specific tarpon and, and when you're talking about sharks tarpon good sized fish in salt water you can tell which way they're facing and anybody who fishes tarpon for me especially as a fly fisherman to know what way which way that fish is facing is so game changing it's not even funny and i i don't we're on to something and i i i mean i literally have been quiet about it because fly fishing for tarpon with side scan when you can you know we see fish rolling we see fish rolling drive through that area first and see which way those fish are facing and set up your drift and pay attention to which way your fly is going when you get bit and you can get dialed to a level that is honestly scary you will hook 
once you figure it out and it's not always going to be the same sometimes they want it coming at their face at a 45 sometimes they want it coming at their face at a 90 sometimes they want it coming straight back at them sometimes they want it coming from their tail forward but as soon as you figure out what they're keyed on they're school fish a lot of saltwater stuff a lot of those fish are relating to one another you see big schools of redfish and there is a, a different reaction in a school mentality than single fish mentality. Those fish are all keyed on the same thing, going the same direction, moving the same way. So when you get that figured out, the damage you can do is unbelievable. And But you have to have side scan. Another example of in saltwater where side scan is amazing, we have these towers, old Air Force relay towers. So especially permit but amberjack as well um african pompano species like that will swim around these towers so they're going around and they may be real close to the tower and that loop takes four minutes or they're a quarter mile away from the tower and that loop takes an hour so with side scan you can tell which way they're going around the tower so you can either stay with them or you can sit on this side, let the school go through, catch your fish, land your fish, then go over to the other side of the tower, knowing they're going to come around that way in about how much time. I mean, it's when you get dialed with just that additional information of side scan, the damage you can do is ridiculous. It truly is. And it relates back to the muskies as well. I mean, I, we still, you know, we talked about on a podcast here just a, a little bit ago that we needed to um, send out some pictures and put them on Instagram and Facebook so people can see, and we haven't done a very good job of that yet. But uh, I did compile a couple more pictures that uh, we definitely need to share with the listeners on our Instagram and Facebook. Um, ben, is there, do you have any pictures of tarpon on side imaging? Oh yeah. Yeah. We'd yeah, love to see them. If you'd text us, uh, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'll see if I have any saves. I mean, it's and that in in Florida, I I'm running my old boat, so I'm running an 1198. I'm not even running a mega imager. I'm running mega up here, but down there, I'm I'm running old standard side imaging, and just because of the size of the fish, and the the cleanness of the sonar in the water, you can see remarkably well. That's intriguing. Really cool stuff. And I, I know I fished with a bunch of guys here pre-fishing for the PMTT. I know a handful of guys, Luke Ronestrand, did not wet a line in pre-fishing. Drove around side scanning and, and literally that level of confidence where he can go, okay, I know there are 8 to 10 fish in this area over here. I'm not going to bother them until the tournament. That's That alone is unbelievable. It really is. I know Ty sent it up on... Um... I went to a camp up at Tamarack Wilderness Lodge in uh, Ontario this year. And Ty basically won't fish any of those bays until he drives through them. Okay, there's three fish here. Okay, we'll fish it. Uh, go to the next bay. Boom, boom, boom. No fish. Let's go to the next bay. And uh, basically what you just said about Luke, you know, using it in that tournament format, he's doing it on his vacation. So good stuff. We're almost cheating. Almost. Almost. <laughs> But like we said at the beginning of this podcast, you still can't always make a meet. You know, <laughs> you, you might be able to locate them, but you can't always make a meet, and that's the beauty of the muskie, I guess. 
you get you some side scan. You get a, a Oktoberfest Junior from TRO and uh, get on a big Minnesota lake. You'll catch one. <laughs> That's funny. It sure seems that way sometimes, but uh, it doesn't always work quite that way. <laughs> Even even TRO Jeff, we're so spoiled when it, in terms of cheating. Uh, I, TRO is a revolutionary, cool thing. Like the ability to listen to people who are actually fishing and put together really specific colors of mass manufactured lures is it, we can, we're not we're so spoiled we can't even oh no no the fifty eight colors they already make that's not enough. <laughs> How many colors and bulldogs are there? And then we had to go and add 55 more to it or whatever we did. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like you said, we're spoiled. goes back to our podcast that we're going to have coming out this Wednesday is the one from Andy Page that we did last week talking about the struggles they need to go through for European pike fishing and, you know, all the different regulations and all the different stuff and how pressured their waters are. It makes our problem seem like nothing. I mean, the stuff we complain about today is, you know, I mean, angling-wise is relatively nothing compared to what those guys have to deal with to get out and try to catch a pike. To cross change over, I'm looking at my notes, and I'm looking at the time. One thing we hadn't talked about, I we have, if Ben wanted to come back on, we definitely have notes that we haven't talked about and we're not going to have time to talk about because I got a boss. Well, I don't really have a boss, but I do have a boss, and he wants me to come to work today. Um, so let's talk about when we hadn't talked about Operation Fishing Freedom, the TV show. We haven't talked about Take a Vet Fishing. Let's touch on those two topics before we wrap up today's podcast. Why don't you talk a little bit about the the TV show, and then you can kind of tie that in with your take a bet fishing that you're involved in, also. That's a that's a perfect segue talking about the the pain in the ass of European pike fishing. Um, we're and how spoiled we are. We're we're so incredibly blessed in this country, and and I mean, I, anybody who fishes just make sure you're taking time to stop and smell the roses, but pay attention to what you see around you. I, I go up to these lakes in Northern Minnesota, Northern Wisconsin, down in Illinois, uh, everywhere I go and they are filled with boats and trucks, trailers and trucks and people with time and money to go fishing. Um, we have this incredible technology at our disposal. We have an amazing free market that, allows companies like musky mayhem and and team rhino outdoors to and and my businesses to make money freely and we're just so incredibly blessed and all of that none of that would be possible without our armed forces and and i come from a long line of of military veterans as do most americans they're they're aren't any American, very few Americans whose life is not touched by a veteran or by the military. And I think as somebody who's been blessed to, with just a lot of good fortune, A, and then blessed to be in an industry where my biggest concern is, are the fish going to bite? How high is the river? Is this sponsor going to be happy? Um, It's just overwhelming to me and specifically as as fishermen and hunters and outdoors people we started take a vet fishing specifically for us to get back and also to just highlight that that part of what makes us the greatest country in the world that you know people want to get hung up on economic numbers or test scores or whatever metric you want to quantify who's the best country in the world there's no question 
we're the best country in the world when it comes to clean woods and clean waters and abundance of game and and management and a heritage of being connected in that way to the environment around us. No other countries are are as successful and have this quality of life and also have hung on to that part of our heritage and our tradition. And, and that's a big part of what the military protect, protects is those woods and those waters and, and our freedoms to enjoy them as we see fit. And it's actually our constitutional right to enjoy them. Uh, it, it's just such a huge part of why we get to do what we do that it was important for us to honor that. So we, we started that with these one day events all over the Midwest uh, organization. We started called Take a Vet Fishing, started by Jay Garstecki and, and Rob Blancher. And then I came on board. They were doing an event in Madison. I came on board and we became a 501C and added an event here on Lake Minnetonka and then out in Michigan and then another one in Wisconsin and then one up at Mille Lacs. And, and uh, I've had the opportunity to take veterans fishing all over the Midwest. And we, we have a great partnership with a camp called Camp Hometown Heroes. We get to take them fishing every year. They're, they're the children of fallen soldiers. Um, it's, that's one of the great honors of my life, be, being allowed to take those kids fishing uh, when in most cases their dad can't take them anymore. So it's, it's absolutely been a, an honor and a blessing and a, a great reminder of why we have it so good and, and why we have everything we have uh, is that that protection of our, our armed forces and our commitment to freedom. So that's where that came from. And, and working with all of those veterans, Jay and I, uh, Jay had a grandfather who was in Normandy. My, my grandfather-in-law was a Pearl Harbor survivor. My grandfather was, both of my grandfathers were in World War II. And in almost all of the cases I just mentioned, their stories kind of went untold. Um, and all of us had some regret about that. So we decided hearing all of these amazing stories and not just the, you know, missing legs and arms and blood and guts and hero stories, the everyday stories, the stories you don't always hear uh, about not the people on the front lines or the supporting folks or the just a lot of those fringe stories. There's so many great ones. So we, we started a show called Operation Fishing Freedom uh, to preserve those stories and to tell the stories we felt like weren't being told. And it's been absolutely a, a smash hit success. Our, our biggest sponsor, Grey Clips, continues to just be extremely supportive and they're, they're big fans of what we're doing. Uh, Recon Boats, Evinrude Motors, St. Croix Rods, um, all big supporters of the show, SKB Cases, uh, Mustang Survival. So it, it really took off and we got some interest uh, from Discovery Channel a couple years ago, two years ago, and we're finally able to put together a deal for last year. So we, we aired quarter one of 2017 and then this year we did, or I'm sorry, 2018. This year we did quarters one. We're doing, we did quarter one. Now we're doing uh, quarter four again on Discovery. Uh, 
it's just taken off it, the support for our veterans this day and age is is really commendable we we still need to and can do better but um it, it's just been a an extreme honor to be able to give back to those folks and and thank them for the ridiculous exuberant uh indulgent existence that i live so that's that's where that came from why don't, why don't you tell everybody ben where they can check it out you said discovery um is there past episodes it's, on youtube or i mean there is yep all the usual suspects uh facebook uh i think instagram youtube all of that the name of the show is operation fishing freedom uh you should be able to find it pretty easy yeah, I know those. I was involved in a take of fishing uh, down in Madison, probably. Man, I don't know what it was four years ago. Just a really well-run event, really class organization. They run a great event. I mean, it was. I think even for like launching and loading boats, they had people that would help you get in and out of the water quickly, and just the amount of uh, care they take towards the vets. Um, it was me and one other guy that were fishing with one vet and we just got to hear the stories and talk to him for the day and kind of understand where, you know, you know, the background of where they came from and what they did just gives you an appreciation for the sacrifices that they made. So, um, Ben, is there ways for people to get involved if they want to either, if they want to guide in that? Cause I know you guys are always looking for guides too. You don't even have to be like, you don't even necessarily have to be a guide. You can just know the water that they're fishing and want to take somebody out fishing for the day. Correct. You absolutely do not have to be a guide. Um, and it's it's really remarkable. I tell people this all the time, and I know there's, they still put pressure on themselves to catch fish, but most people are just so happy to be noticed, to be recognized, to be thanked, to spend some time really honoring and focusing on them and the things they've done the fishing part does not matter. And, and even if it's not a situation with the guide, the ceremony after the camaraderie with the other veterans, um, just coming out, man, just showing up is all you really have to do. And in so many of these charitable situations, people turn it into a big thing. It doesn't have to be just come out, man. Just, just make the effort. That's all you really have to do. The success part matters so much less than you can imagine when you get into this stuff and work more in in a philanthropic sense you you find out it really really the effort is is what makes the difference and anybody who's a fisherman that has some extra gear that wants to take somebody fishing we'll match them up and and get you out there and feed you lunch and every veteran leaves with a fishing rod and reel from 13 fishing um, we give away tons of prizes and uh, just an opportunity to say thanks. So anybody who enjoys fishing and understands uh, why we're allowed to to do that and why we're, you know, have those freedoms, it's because of these folks. And, and they would love to get in your boat and just even go for a boat ride. We forget we're spoiled as fishermen. Like I said, we, we forget the, what we do is not something everyone gets to do all the time and sometimes we take that for granted just getting somebody out in a boat who hasn't been out of their house much it can literally change and save lives it has and it does yeah one thing i took away from the event was just realize um it the fishing actually was kind of a smaller i mean i want to say it was a small part of the day but 
it was only like a part of the day. It was like 50% of it. The rest of it was kind of just like you said, it's almost like a celebration of that person's, um, or not that one person. I'm just thinking the one person who's in the boat, but like the collective group, their, um, what they've given, what they've given to, you know, the sacrifices they've made. It was just, like I said, it was more of a celebration of that versus just the fishing part of it. The fishing part was obviously what it was all about, but it wasn't what it was all about, if that makes any sense. And, and that's exactly what it is. And that's the same with the TV show. I, we said it's a fishing show. It's the fishing is just the setting. The show is a basically a half an hour documentary uh, about a veteran story, and it happens to be set in a fishing boat. Uh, but that's you're exactly right. It, it's just a it's it's not about fishing. It's a chance to just honor and say thanks and celebrate the service and sacrifice and the amazing life we have here. Yep, hundred percent. Do you have anything more to add about Take a Vet Fishing or Operation Fishing Freedom, Ben? Yeah, Take a Vet Fishing, we are always looking for guides. Uh, the events are, are posted up there. If you just go to takeavetfishing.org, uh, click on the events tab, and under there you, you'll find all the events we do. You can sign up as a guide, sign up as a veteran, or sign up as a volunteer and, and just come out and, and be a part of it. And then also operationfishingfreedom.com. Org, I believe that's also .org. We are recently a 501c3. Uh, Operation Fishing Freedom, you go on that site, there's a, a button on there that says nominate. If you know a great veteran story, especially one that relates to fishing, a story that hasn't been shared enough, something you haven't seen, please share it with us. Just go to that nominate tab and nominate a veteran. And uh, if their story gets picked, they'll appear on our show. Well, guys, you you ready to wrap this one up today? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Ben has brought a lot to the table. And uh, <laughs> we pretty much buried ourselves in content with fly fishing for muskies as well as other species. But, you know, I can see Ben coming back and, and adding more value from the salt to the muskie side as well in the near future. But, uh, you know, it's, there's a uh, ton of crossover there. It's it's. It's really been cool to bring some of that stuff back up here and bring some of our stuff down there. And there, it, there is a ton to talk about there. For sure. For sure. Yeah, Brad, on a, on a typical show, I have some bullet points and usually we hit most of the bullet points and then we start to wrap the show up. I think today I got like two or three bullet points. Fly fishing, honestly, wasn't even on my list of bullet points, even though we should have known based on Ben's passion for fly fishing that it would have come up. But it wasn't. It wasn't even on it. We got the background, and we talked about the, you know, the take of that fishing and Operation Fishing Freedom. We didn't talk about anything about crossover from salt to fresh. We didn't talk anything about his adventures in tarpon. So, Ben, if you ever want to come back on, you know, feel free to get in touch with one of us, or we'll get in touch with you, because I'm sure we're going to run out of guests. People are going to, you know, we don't have that many friends, so... (laughs) We're gonna we're, we're gonna need we're gonna need to beg you to get another hour and a half of your time at some point. How much how much are we paying Ben for this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I heard I heard we're paying him in cowgirls. So yeah. Oh no. Okay. Now we got a deal. <laughs> Just send me a bunch of uh, Oktoberfest juniors and we'll be straight. All right. <laughs> hey Brad, while you're at it, send me some Oktoberfest juniors too. I could use All a couple right. more. You got a box going out today. <laughs> All right, that's good. We're getting uh, low. That color's still selling three years later. Continues to catch fish, so it's a good thing. It does. All right, guys. Well, this is Backlash Podcast. We'll wrap up with the other companies in a minute. I'll give you the Backlash stuff right now. So if you want, you can get in touch with us, backlashpodcast at gmail.com. 
Uh, you can also go to our Facebook page and you can go to our Instagram page. I think that's it for that kind of stuff. Um, Facebook, you want to check that out occasionally because what we've been doing is we've been putting up some questions and topics that you want to see us discuss in future episodes. Brad and I are going to do a question and answer here pretty quick, and I'm sure it won't be the only one that we do just because sometimes we don't want to always bother. You know, everybody's busy this time of year, so it's hard for us to, I want to say hard for us to get guests, but sometimes we just don't want to bother people to get guests. Um, it takes, you know, we appreciate them taking their time out of their day to come out and talk to us. Obviously it's a sacrifice on their end. So we really appreciate that. But if you want go on there, check out, check out the Facebook page, leave a comment on there, what you want to see, guest you want to see, just any information you can give us about the podcast. We realize that, you know, we're only 20 episodes in 21 episodes in whatever this one is. And so we're, you know, we always have room for improvement. Uh, so like I said, you can either go there or you can email us backlash podcast at gmail.com. The company I own and operate is team Rhino outdoors. You can find us at team We carry a bunch of custom colored baits. That was what we started it with. Now we've kind of pushed into some stock colored stuff too, because guys had the need for it. They wanted a black and orange bucktail or, you know, or black and nickel bucktail or whatever. So we're starting to carry more of that stuff too, to try to fill in around that, around the custom niche that we had. If you want to find us on Instagram, you can find us there. That's Team Rhino Outdoors on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook also with Team Rhino Outdoors. And lastly, it would be our YouTube page. Uh, we put out new content every Sunday at 6 o'clock during what would be the fishing season for us in the Midwest. It's like June through the end of December. So we've been putting out a new episode. We have, I don't know how many up there this, month, this year already, eight from this year, this season. We have a bunch more to come. I think I think recording-wise going, we're all the way through, just about through the end of November already with a lot of fishing yet to go, some of the best fishing yet to go. So that's all about Team Rhino Outdoors. Brad, why don't you talk about Muskie Mayhem Tackle for a minute? I'm Brad Hoppy from Muskie Mayhem Tackle. Um, you can reach us through Instagram, Facebook, and it's real easy. It's muskiemayhemtackle.com. That's it. You don't want to talk about how you guys are the original manufacturers of the uh, big bladed bucktails and stuff like that. You got the rabbit squirrel line, you know, stuff like that. I'm not real good at uh, tooting my own horn, but yeah, we are. We're, we're the original uh, flat taboo big blades um, manufacturers, and we're pretty proud of that. And um, we also have Eagle Tails and uh, another great company that we purchased back in 05. It's uh, It's been a wild ride, and we love to hear from all of you. And if you have pictures of fish that you've caught on our products, we'd love to have them and share them with some other people. So feel free to contact us at any time. Perfect. Well, Ben, we really do appreciate you coming out and taking the time to talk to us this morning. The um, I think this conversation is probably going to end up costing me money in the future. I can just see this already. So thank you for that in advance. Like I said, we'd love to have you back again. There's definitely more stuff that we could talk about. And if you'd be willing, we'd certainly like to do that again at some point. Anytime, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. It was good stuff, Ben. And I truly appreciate your time. Um, looking forward to doing this again with you in the near future. All right. We'll see you in September. Yeah. Thanks again for coming out. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys.